Our friend Eugene is joining us for a venture called Ultimate Sensei, and Kostya is going to introduce that in a second. However, since I realized he was going to be on the show, I had an idea to talk about different training methods. And the cool thing, the amazing thing about Eugene, one of the amazing things, is that he has uh, studied under a remarkable array of different coaches. And so we then knocked out together just brainstorming what I think are, in hindsight, even though we did it so quickly, like the six fundamental ways of studying chess. There might be more, but I feel like this is a pretty good list. Before we get into it, though, I'm going to pass it to Kosi, and he's going to tell us about Ultimate Sensei. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're very excited about the show, Ultimate Sensei, that's, uh, that's coming up. I think I still have the upcoming command uh, live. Actually, a lot of stuff coming up uh, this week. But yeah, Grandmaster Eugene is joining us for this show. He's going to be one of four uh, coaches that's going to be working with two students each. That's starting next Saturday, 10 a.m. Uh, Pacific time. And uh, Jesse, maybe we have, do we have that graphic? Can we put that up? It might also come with a little sound. You guys can tell me if the sound is there. Here we <laughs> All go. All right, let's do it. I was scared. Got a little oh, promo. there it is, man. Let's see if I can hear this. Welcome to Ultimate Sensei, a coaching competition <laughs> it's not unlike any working. other. All right. Over the next several. Uh, that's fine. So, yeah, season one, uh, very exciting starting up. Uh, we'll be announcing the full roster. Um, tomorrow on Twitter, uh, as well as the other coaches and uh, some of the students, all of the students as well. Um, so yeah, that's going to be that's going to be a blast. Uh, Jess is going to be there doing commentary. And I'm Sam Copeland is going to be uh, hosting the show. I'm going to be there as the uh, season one commissioner, Dana White type figure. It's going to be great. Yeah, Yep. I'm actually quite happy to uh, join the school project. That's going to be exciting. Awesome. Yeah, Sonny, this is the same Eugene that did videos with me in uh, Reykjavik. That was a lot of fun and uh, good friends oh, yeah. with uh, Isaac as well. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. Reykjavik is fun. I like that tournament. Yeah. So, guys, make sure to follow Eugene. Uh, he has a website, chessopeningsexplained.com, where he has a lot of great opening videos. And he's also going to be streaming uh, some of his lessons on Twitch for the show. So if you want to watch those lessons, follow his channel and uh, you'll get notified for that. Um, but that's it. Let's get into it between two senseis. All right, guys. So again, what this is, is we're talking about the best training method. And we're, when we do each of these things, what the way we'll do it is I'm going to move this little hand to whatever it is we're talking about. And we're going to have 10 minutes to talk about it. And we're going to try to introduce it. We'll maybe take turns introducing the different methods. We'll talk about it 10 minutes. Then we're going to go to the next one. Are you guys ready? All right, let's start. I think we're ready. Okay, there, yeah. there we go. So Eugene, you had the experience of studying under the school bully or a school bully. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so this is uh, an interesting uh, name of a chess training method for the school bully. <laughs> um, I think to kind of give you guys a small perspective, imagine a 15-year-old kid invited to a training uh, session or lesson with one of the world's famous coaches, all right? Back then, in 1995, Jinji was Kiamsky's um, coach, right? Kiamsky probably doesn't need any introduction. He was, what, top five or top 10 in the world 
Famous and, legend. Yeah, I mean, the guy was basically playing matches with uh, Anand and everybody. He, he actually, well, did he qualify? Remember, the chess world was split into two different federations, the FIDE matches and then the PCA matches. So anyway, the long uh, story short, Jinji and Kamsky's dad had a fallout. And everybody knows Kamsky's dad. You know, the guy is uh, not a pleasant character, <laughs> to say the least. And uh, at that moment, Jinji invited me to be his student. And I was just a mere, uh, maybe, candidate master in Russia. So in US, it's like 2150 strength. And his training method shocked me, right? This is somebody who had years and years of training under the best Russian trainers uh, before I met Jinji. And we call this method the school bully. Um, maybe not quite the most accurate uh, name, but it is actually quite a funny name. And the reason is, Jinji asked me, what do you play against the Sicilian? And I said, I play like C3 Sicilian. He's like, no, that's soft. You got to play something more, uh, you know, more aggressive. And he introduced to me this setup that I've never seen in my life called the Grand Prix attack. Everybody knows that, right, guys? So E4, C5, Knight, knight C3, and then you play F4, Knight F3, Bishop C4, Bishop B5, Castle short, D3, Queen E1, F5, Queen H4, blah, 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 the attack starts. And then he basically says, do you have any questions? And then I have some question about some movement. He turns the board around, he says, play. <laughs> And that's pretty much a summary of our training method because he is probably the most original opening thinkers out there. A lot of opening ideas are just spectacular. And he's a very practical player at the same time. So every time he would introduce an idea, he would show me a couple of moves. And then he says, now let me turn the board, play it against me, right? Defend. And that's why we call this method the school bully because it was actually quite difficult for me to defend against Jinji, who is a world-class player himself. And the ideas are so amazing that every time I would play out a little game of analysis against him, he'd crush me. I'll say, okay, I'll try something else. He'll crush me again. I'll, I'll try another line. He'll crush me again. But that method of opening analysis is so ingrained in my head after I go home after that session that I'm like, whatever he's teaching me, must be absolutely perfect, right? Like I can't find any flaws with that. So is and it similar now when you're working with Stockfish and it just like, it'll kill all of your ideas? Much better, much better because uh, Stockfish doesn't explain to me the moves, right? It just shows, it just plays it out. Whereas Ginger actually talks through the moves. Oh, so that's good. He's like, he's like, here is my idea. What is your idea? You don't have an idea? And he would just start screaming at, not screaming at me, but he would be like, <laughs> You know, if if I play some random move with no idea, he'll definitely let me know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think, too, one of the reasons I like calling it school bully is bullies now in this day and age are now unfavorably seen. When I was a kid, there was always school bullies. It was just an accepted thing of life that you had school bullies. And also that you had teachers who would get in your face, who would talk to you and say terrible things, terrible things to you. And it's an older school, and I feel like there's even a kind of um, 
desire from a lot of people, I think, to have that kind of teacher, to have somebody who's going to talk to them mean um, and to get in their face and tell it to them straight, you know. And uh, there was that movie just out recently with uh, about the drummer, right? And you had the really mean oh, uh, yeah, music that movie, coach. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, that one. And then I think also searching for Bobby Fischer as, you know, uh, Bruce Pandolfini is not like the guy in the movie, but the guy in the movie's like this tough dude who's going to get in your face. He's kind of like the school bully, right? He's going to get in there and tell you some terrible things and tell you you're an idiot and put pressure on you, I guess. And I think that's, if you're going to be charitable about the school bully, the advantage is he's putting the pressure on you in the training session so that you'll be able to face up to it in real life, right? Or over the board, as they say. I can't imagine Kostya ever being the school bully as a teacher. <laughs> I can't imagine it. Yeah, I think I. it's also like a personality thing, even though yeah. Jinji is like really nice to me and to like people he really loves, but he has very strong opinions. Like another chess player who I can think of was Yermo, right? Yeah. He's got a very strong yeah. personality as well. Really strong. And I think Yermo's had to learn to t tone it down. Right, uh, teaching chess in America, he's had to learn to tone it down. You know, that's right. Yeah. Um, when I, for example, when I went to school, uh, academics, you know, I did my PhD in in Germany. There was still at that time, loads of profs who would just eat you. They would just, and it would be fun. They loved it. It was a whole tradition of a patriarchy and a hierarchy, and. Um, it's lost, but it's definitely a method of teaching, I think for sure. And even sometimes now when I'm criticizing students, I will kind of say it in a funny or ironic way, but it's still a little bit of bullying, you know. Later on the show, we're going to do Sunday Night Fights tonight, and I, oh yeah, I, I was just saying Kostya would never treat other people that way, but he, he's already talking about people <laughs> mitching it. He's yeah, talking, I, there's a guy I, named Mitch, and so now we're making fun of him by calling, saying mitching it. When he doesn't think long enough in the end game. No, I believe in like positive reinforcement. I think students <laughs> need to like build confidence. And then when they play, like it's important to, you know, you gotta, you gotta hit the dog when it makes a mistake. So it knows not to do that again. Right. But you also have to give your students like some kind of mental treat. You know, you got need positive reinforcement in there when they do something right, when they take a risk, you know, they, they do something like they don't normally do. Like they try something different. I think, that's always worth rewarding because that's how you grow in chess. You got to try new ideas mm -hmm. and it doesn't work the first couple of times, but then eventually you kind of figure it out and starts, uh, starts working. So taking risks, it's always something like, uh, my students will get some, uh, get some, uh, praise out of me for. What was some of the evil things that he told you, Eugene? Do you remember? Ginger? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Like I'm trying to recall, but let's say I make a move and without thinking, or I give my opponent like a really powerful outpost, you know, how could you make such a move? <laughs> you know, there's some, I can't quite mimic his voice, very deep yeah. voice, but maybe yeah. Jesse, you can do a better job. How could but, you make such a move? <laughs> you know, like that. But, but to him, this is like, you're disrespecting your, your position or your pieces in such a personal way to him mm, that mm -hmm. it basically triggers to me. Like, then I realize, like, how could I make such a move? Then I start questioning myself. And I think that's how I start absorbing certain positional patterns too. Right. 
Was was Jinji the first like uh, serious coach you worked with, Eugene? Well, on that level, yes. You know, the first coach of a uh, who used to be top ten in the world. Because mm-hmm. obviously, I went through lots of coaches in Russia. Like my dad, he's a pretty strong. Uh, I am strength uh, player who was my coach oh. from pretty much when I was seven years old. He had his own chess club in Russia, and then I was part of this chess camps series you know the Karpov chess school where i met not Karpov himself but lots of other gms the zaitsev uh sveshnikov i was in the kasparov chess school where i got to interact with all these you know top level coaches so lots of ims and gms but not as um powerful personalities or not as famous in the chess world as ginger wow very cool um maybe as an example uh, in this Nikitin book that I read recently, um, he's talking about it was actually a game that Kasparov didn't beat Yermo in, lost eventually, but had a chance to win easily with the move g4, just winning a piece straight out. And uh, so for the next year, whenever Nikitin saw Kasparov, he would say, Oh, there goes g4. There goes g4. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's I, I think maybe even a different name that we could have gone with instead of school bully though I like school bully would have been the old school right that's like the old way that the guys used to talk down to people yeah totally different way of or, doing or things. another name maybe the truth hurts the truth hurts yeah that's <laughs> another one okay let's move on to number uh, two Jesse, here. go ahead I, I need your I need your mic closer because I can barely hear you. Okay, I'll put my. I'm talking different yeah. mics and to different people here. So let's. Oh, that's so much better. Yeah, yeah. that's so much better. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry uh, about that. Let's so, do it that way. Oh yeah, I, I, there was a question. How old was I when I started started with Ginger? Uh, I think about 15 years old. And just to give you an idea whether Ginger's method works or not, okay, I was uh, playing in the World Open. Let's see. I think maybe that's before Ginger or with Ginger. I don't remember. So at first I played in the expert section. That's under 2200, right? And I had a provisional rating back then in the summer of 1995. I actually won that section outright, clear first. So I could have gotten $10,000, but because I had provisional rating and I recently came from Russia, they only gave me 1500 bucks, which to <laughs> me was like more money than I could ever you know, have seen. <laughs> But the Russia part, that was part of it. The fact that you're coming from Russia, they're like, oh, he must be good. Yes, I was like already pretty strong uh, candidate master. So mm-hmm. in 1994, I finished fourth in all of Russia championship among people like, you know, Yakovenko, who finished first, you know, lots of famous names there. Oh, wow. Um, so, and then a year later, after starting with Jinji, I went from 2375 to 2500 within a year, USCF rated, and on I played the World Open in 1996. A year later, after I won the expert section, I played in the open section. And I was doing so well that in the last round, I played on board one against Yermo. So you can see the huge progress, right? And then I didn't expect to be playing against Yermo. Of course, I got crushed. And he later wrote that this is the easiest last round pairing in his life (laughs) for the money. Uh, But that's a different story. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, This next one is the idea of a coach that this coach knows what the truth is and he knows, i.e. what the 
right principles of chess are, and he knows how to coach them. As an example of that, uh, we have Yosef Dorfman, who wrote a book called The Method. And again, Eugene is with us and uh, beautifully can tell us what it was like to work with Dorfman. Yes, so uh, to me, it was a very interesting, because I was already pretty strong uh, I am. Uh, I worked with Dorfman around 2000 or 2001. I went to France. By the way, for those of you who don't know uh, Dorfman, he was Kasparov's coach, one of many Kasparov's coaches in his match against uh, against uh, Karpov in 1984, I think, 84-85. And at some point, there was a big controversy when things got heated that, you know, this analysis was leaking right. uh, to Karpov. Everyone was just paranoid. I'm not even sure if there was anything like that involved, but people were just paranoid. And Dorfman got sacked, and then another coach got sacked. Right. And he ended up sort of losing the you know, that privilege to be Kasparov's coach, right, at that time. And slowly, even though he was that good, he was already playing like USSR championships. I think slowly he kind of uh, stepped away from the Russian scene and moved to France. And eventually Etienne Bakro came along, right? He took Etienne Bakro from unknown to top, I don't know, maybe top 20 player really mm -hmm. quickly. Yeah. So, you know, Dorfman did create the student from scratch, and Bakro, right? And then when I met Dorfman in 2000, 2001, he didn't work with Bakro. They had a fallout and he was basically available. You know, this top, top level guy available to me who is a nobody. I am an aspiring, I am with the GM prospects. And I won the Samford Fellowship, which is a special award given to the top American player under the age of 25. I hope you guys have heard of this award. It's a pretty uh, oh, yeah. cool award. David Proust also won that award. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, David Proust. So Eugene reveals the method, says Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit more. Yeah, what is the method? And Yeah, and, so the method yeah. is basically in any type of position, guys, whether it's uh, some beginning of the opening or some middle game, there is a way to figure out what to do based on asking yourself a couple of questions and understanding statics and dynamics. He actually wrote the book called The Method in Chess, but it's all about statics and dynamics and breaking it down. And the concept is the following. Let's say if you have a much better pawn structure, maybe a bishop pair or even your pawn up, your static factors are so powerful that you're just gonna win the game with natural play, right? If you don't recognize that, you are basically doomed yourself to passivity to the end of the game and you're probably gonna lose the game. So you have to fight by going, maybe sacrifice a pawn or sacrifice an exchange by changing the factors in your favor, like maybe getting into more dynamic factors. So recognizing the static fact factors and the dynamic factors is the foundation of his method. And once you're really good at that, you'll be able to navigate through any position. And can we think of anybody else who would be stands out as an example of somebody who has a method and believes in a method? Yeah, actually, I would say this is really similar to the uh, Indian super coach R.B. Ramesh, because I um, I was like one of the main editors on on his book, which is uh -huh. called uh, Logical Decision Making in Chess. And he has like a very kind of similar style where it's like you look at the position, you identify the factors, you remember my principles, 
and you'll always find like a good decision, you know, 80, 90% of the time, right? And like, of course, there will be very concrete moments, but the idea is to kind of focus on, yeah, strategic principles and kind of following a general system of thinking. When you're strategically worse, you got to make the position dynamic. When you're dynamically better, you have to strike quickly, you know, and, and capitalize. Interesting. And I should mention, uh, Benji is asking about Agard. And we, at least uh, when I was talking with Eugene, we put Agard in the question of number three of drilling with examples. But Agard does have his three questions that he likes to pushes in a pedagogic sense. But I don't think that's the kind of method that at least near not nearly as elaborate as what we're talking about with Dorfman. That's right. Yeah, it's more I agree. Tool. Yeah. Though what we can yeah. say, of course, is we've separated all of these six things, but it's not, of course, they're not mutually exclusive. You can have a little bit of everything. We might even talk uh, amongst ourselves about which ones we have, because I'm sure it's not, there, there, there's various bits of each number uh, in here, uh, in all of us. Yeah. And obviously there are so many chess coaches out there with their own philosophies, but, you know, the Jinji and Dorfman are such powerful personalities and such polar opposites when you're analyzing with them right. that to me, it's really interesting how many different approaches there is to chess, right? Yeah. Jinji is like this raw talent, like unbelievably talented, maybe like Tal-like talent or Karpov-like talent, right? Whereas Dorfman is this hard worker. He says to me every week when the Weekend Chess magazine comes out with thousands of games, I'm sitting there with my cup of coffee ready to go through every single game to find for, to look for those gems, opening ideas. And honestly, if you guys ever tried to look through 1,000 or 2,000 games at one sitting to find one or two ideas, I mean, that's not easy. Uh, but that's uh, work ethic, right? I mean, these guys are unbelievable. So how does Dorfman deal with like, because there's always exceptions, you know? There's times when like you, you don't trade, you know, rooks when you're up in exchange, and you have two rooks versus rook and bishop. And it's like, you don't trade rooks in that situation for some reason. There are times when like, you know, mm -hmm. you can take their bishop, but it's like the two bishops aren't necessarily good in the position. Like, how do you, how do you deal with exceptions? So you're not just kind of very rigid. Well, he's also a very strong calculator, right? So yeah. there's a lot of calculation under the hood. So when he gives you a position to, um, to sort of think through if it, if the position could be resolved through calculation, that's good enough for him. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, Solman calls it uh, the imbalances, which but, I think very similar concept, right? But, but then Dorfman and Dvoretsky have a lot of beef, right? That's a separate story altogether, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, we're going to talk about Dvoretsky shortly. That's a, a little bit different uh, school of thought. But maybe but, just uh, to introduce it, right? I mean, one of the mm -hmm. things that we're going to say about Dorfman is when you're put in a complex situation, it's not really calculation that's going to bail you out. It's going to be developing a sense of intuition of what's going on in the position in a maybe a more verbal sense than a calculation sense, right? Exactly. As a matter of fact, let's say you already recognize that you are slowly losing the static balance in the position, that will actually trigger for you to calculate because GMs are naturally lazy. We don't want to calculate if we don't have to. We can play the game in autopilot. People don't realize that, right? We have so much intuition that we don't need to calculate, but 
I think those key trigger, those critical moments, right, is what makes uh, Dorfman really work. He understands, like, if you are choosing between two moves that will either put you on the path of the static decline and slowly suffer and lose, or maybe sacrifice a point for unclear compensation, there is no even comparison. You have to go for the latter, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how much of, uh, let's just talk first two, now that we've got this in there, uh, between Jinji and Dorfman, how much, well, since we're on Dorfman, how much of Dorfman's thinking do you at least, let's say, even subconsciously still have with you when you're at the board? Honestly, I was never really a true believer that there is one method in chess like Dorfman came up with. So I was yeah. also quite always quite skeptical of his approach. But what I did appreciate is that every position that he gave me to demonstrate some of his uh, philosophies, he's, he tested it on Topolov, on Bakro, on Gelfand. Like the guy worked with top, top players. Mm -hmm. And then he says, oh, here you chose a line that Gelfand also thought about, but you know Topolov went the other way. So that was quite interesting that uh, even at the end of the day, there's still different sort of approaches. To, right. to a lot of positions. Yeah. Right, right, absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on to Mr. Dvoretsky. I'll move him down here and I'll reset the clock. And um, yeah, here we go. Yeah, and so the connection that I have with Dvoretsky is more indirect. I was never his student, mm -hmm. but my dad, who is a pretty strong international master, and he uh, he got a, what is called like a master's degree of teaching chess at the Moscow uh, Chess University. Uh, Dvoretsky was his coach. Not coach, but he was like a lecturer, right? So lots of uh, material that I have, Dvoretsky's books, and uh, through kind of indirect approach, I can definitely talk about Dvoretsky in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think we should mention, um, at least when Eugene and I were talking about these six different kinds of doing things, we put Agard into this as well. And I'm going to push this now, to throw this now to Kostya, because I think, now Kostya can, you know, say it in his own words, but I think that Kostya is more in line with this kind of uh, method of teaching where there are examples and you show the student them. And the memorable phrase I remember from that Kostya said was, if you are trying to teach somebody a fastball, you or how to react to a fastball, you do it to them a thousand times, you know, or, you know, how to kick a, f a field goal or whatever it is, you just have them do it over and over. And so that's how you repair the weakness as the coach sees it through these examples. And I don't know, Kostya, is that correct? Is that how you see it? Um, I think it's it's pretty similar. I definitely see it that way for things like building, uh, like tactical vision, like simple tactics. I think it's all about yeah, drilling those things. Uh, I would I would um, I would compare it maybe to like a free throw. It's right. like the simplest shot, no pressure, but you're not going to make it every time. So it's always worth worth practicing. Um, I mean, the risk is just like somehow I, I think his whole thing is actually David had a really good line in his stream. The other night, he said, um, sometimes you need a spoonful of art to make the chess wisdom go down <laughs> or something uh, to that. So it's like, you know, showing a concept and some kind of creative or unusual idea can often make it stick uh, quite well, mm. um, especially when it comes to things like, you know, defending and like finding uh, combinations or finding unusual ways of improving the position. 
and I also think Dvoretsky is just like an incredibly uh, talented writer. And I'd imagine he's like very, um, he explains things well in person too, uh, to make things just sound very interesting and like just make you excited about the game and especially excited about the depth of the game, I think was really, was really critical there. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I, I, I think Dvoretsky is a little bit hard to get a handle on for me because there's different books of his that I've read. And uh, mostly I'm going to say, though, that I am opposed. <laughs> I'm opposed to this Dvoretsky thing. And I'll try to put it like this, that uh, it feels... Let's just take the Endgame Manual as maybe the most famous thing that the guy's written. Uh, that he's talking about these. He's talking about the Endgame as if it were a collection of algorithms, and there are algorithms in the Endgame, and it's helpful to learn. There's no doubt about it. But there's so much more to the Endgame than the algorithms. And then people take this Endgame Manual, study it, and it you know makes their head bleed, and then they think they've understood the ending. And no, I don't think they've understood the ending at all. But just by doing that book, and similarly with all this, a lot of the other stuff that gets pushed out there with the exercises, I don't feel like I'm getting any kind of understanding of a position, especially not a verbal understanding that I'm going to remember. It's more like I'm just being pushed through some exercises that feel very hard. And maybe because they feel very hard, maybe I'll be like, oh, I'm getting really tough now. But I don't feel like I'm actually getting, or the students are getting to be that much better of players. Well, I, I sympathize with your second point, Jesse, but I feel like we got to make the distinction that like, Dvoretsky's Endgame Manual is very much like a theoretical endgame work, even Fair though there's some practical examples. Yeah. But we should say like Dvoretsky basically wrote Sheroshevsky's Endgame Strategy. Like that book is based off of Dvoretsky's lectures, mm. like the mm -hmm. most like classic kind of like, like endgame understanding book out there. I totally agree. And I, what I, w w reason I concentrated on that book is I feel like that's the most popular. And when people think of Dvoretsky, that's what they're thinking of. But another example, uh, is his tactics book, which I thought was actually pretty cool, but had zero words. It was like, here's a here's a position and calculated it out, bro. Then figure it out, and then we'll see how well you did. Which honestly, I'm you know I'm not totally opposed to, but I don't feel like my understanding of the game was helped. Uh, anyway, that yeah. One other thing I should also point out about Vrensky is the guy is a specialist. So think about this. He's not going to take anyone as his student, right? If you already made it to the, uh, you know, let's say a baseball philosophy, right? Into the major leagues and you have one tiny area that mm. is slightly lacking. He'll take you under his wing. He'll work on that area really, really hard. And right. he'll make that your strength. Right. Now that is a specialty, right? Yeah. Ginger and Dorfman have worked with anyone under the sun. You know, I am and Kamsky are, you know, maybe top ginger students, but he's worked with, you know, 1200s, 1400s, 1800s. Uh, and they loved him, you know, the way he explains chess. Dorfman, I think, also worked with a lot of low-rated players, whereas I don't know about Dvoretsky really taking up the worst Russian player and yeah. saying, I'm going to make him an IM and GM. He usually takes the best Russian player. Yeah. Uh, you know, he worked with, what is it, Yusupov, Dolmatov, Drev, like all those guys, when they met Dvoretsky, they're already top juniors. Right. So he's a specialist, you know, if you think mm. about it. So, yeah, and I, th 
I think to that end, I think that's a great word for it to be a specialist uh, in that I hadn't, I didn't realize until I read the Nikitin book that Domata, they, the, his team, the Kasparov team, just sat him, da- sat him down with, sat Kasparov down with Dvoretsky and said, teach him the ending, you yeah. know, <laughs> teach him all the ending positions he needs to know. And that happened. And he became a very reasonable ending play, end game player, you know. It's definitely a very different thing to develop talent. I think that's like a whole nother skill when it comes to coaching. Yeah. Certainly one thing to work with like a strong player and show them some like interesting positions, but yeah, to, uh, to, yeah, turn like an average player, just someone who hasn't done a lot of chess yet into like a strong chess player that, that to me is still a little mysterious, a little magical. Yeah. I remember there is a unrelated story, but funny about teach him the something, uh, concept in, in Moscow, there was this, uh, unknown, you guys don't know him, uh, Russian international. I'm not sure if he was an IM or just master, uh, Ilya Koifman. You probably guys never heard of him, right? No, no. But he always played the triangle, uh, yeah. like D5, E6, yeah. C6, right? As black. And then he would go play into the node boom. The node boom is actually quite powerful variation. You know that, right? Right. right. Uh, very theoretical, highly, highly, uh, uh, unusual where black gets gives up uh, the bishop pair and the center but gets to the two side pawns connected a and b pawns anyway so he was the specialist in that opening he was just this unknown i am and then kramnik or kramnik's coach took him to his moscow apartment to this kofman's apartment said teach him the triangle the slav <laughs> triangle wow and Cam, um, not, did I say Kramnik or Kamsky? It's Kramnik. Kramnik. Yeah, yeah. Kramnik said there, he was a little boy, didn't say a word and just wrote down all the analysis uh-huh. and for two, three hours. <laughs> wow. That's pretty funny, yeah. Um, I think, you know, to be fair to this school, it is, I think, it could be seen as a specialist school, but also like when... Uh, I'm reading a lot of the Agard now, for example, and I do feel it's very based in the Dvoretsky school, but there's elements of all these other things. Uh, four, study your own games, there's that. There's a little bit of method with his, Agard's got like three questions that he wants you to ask, so that's a little bit of a thing, of a way to, a pathfinder, a way to mm-hmm. find your way in any given position. So, you know, there's elements of all these things uh, in there. And I didn't realize what Kostya said about Dvoretsky writing the Sharashevsky book. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I think it's kind of uh, an open secret. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll say Agar takes, I feel like, a much more uh, holistic approach than Dvoretsky. Um, Dvoretsky definitely mentions stuff like how important it is to study your own games. I think he just has like so many lectures and so many books that it's now like it's hard to I feel like he's covered probably every aspect of the game in, in nice detail but um, we kind of know him as like almost like a calc. it's always a concrete thing like calculate this calculate that right. uh, very um, very concrete stuff but um, with Agard, I feel like he takes some more like yeah it's about the whole game it's not just about like you know just about playing slightly better than your opponent versus Dvoretsky might be more like it's about finding the best move in every position. Right. Okay, well, let's move on to number three, and I'll introduce this one. Number four. I, I, number four, excuse me. I would say this is my personal school, if you like. And nice. um, I did a video, if you want, anyone who wants to watch it, called The True 
Path to Chess Improvement on YouTube. Um, and part of this, though, I got to say, is because I did not have the advantages that Eugene had. A lot of American kids, in fact, don't didn't have coaches. Now it's a little bit easier with Zoom and everything else to get coaching, but I didn't really have a coach or access in the same way that a lot of the Soviet and Russian kids did. Um, and so this method, which basically says that the true path to chess improvement will be found in studying your own games. There is the place where you're going to learn the opening, your openings. That's where you're going to learn the middle game, your middle games. And that's the place where you're going to learn the ending. And in particular, to develop an emotional intelligence by studying your own games of the kind of situations uh, you're in, how to deal with them, and the kind of red lights that need to go on when certain kinds of situations are happening based on the analysis that you've done in your own games. Um, I'm, I guess I'm friendly with a variety of other ways of improvement. With calculation, for example, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I just enjoy it. I think it's fun to do little exercises. But um, I don't actually, I'm going to leave it there and I'll let you guys jump into it. But I, we can talk later about how all these things interrelate. But let me just say, this number four is the hardest because you are all on your own. Maybe you can do it with a friend, but for myself, I'm doing it on my own. And uh, it is very lonely. And so... As a coach, I want to say there are very few of my students who's actually been able to follow it. They find it too difficult. And I can talk more about that at length, but I'm going to leave it there and let it, you guys take it. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have my little notebooks with me, Jesse, but when I was a little boy, I had all the notebooks with all my analysis. Yeah, and I would yeah. use like different color pen, you know, like black, blue, and red ink yeah. uh, to make notes. Uh, but this is very uh, dear to me, study your own games, because every Russian uh, schoolboy had to have his own little notebook. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. What Jesse would be the example. You know, they would say, there is this kid in America, Jesse, look what he's doing. Yeah. We would all be kind of making fun of it, right? We're like, yeah, whatever, it's notebooks with chess analysis. You know, we already got the best coaches, right? We don't need any of that stuff. But... Uh, <laughs> I think uh, there is some truth to this. You are pretty much going on a path of self-discovery, meaning right. that Jesse, you have your own chess style. I have my own chess style. Kostya has his chess style. The style is forming based on who we rub shoulders against, our own personalities, our own chess upbringing, right? But this notebook en enables us to find our own sort of... Uh, uh, our own voice, right? And I think through studying your own games, not only will you find your own flows, how to work on those flows, you can actually figure out what really works for you, what positions you like, what you don't like, what the thought processes that go. There's so much psychology involved in this kind of method. But one thing I should add that I was never really that good at going over the games by myself. I really needed somebody, whether it's a, a friend or you know, I am GM, whoever it is, just to kind of uh, give me an out, you know, look from the outside at my chest. Uh, that is quite helpful for everyone. So if you are going with number four, study your own games, it's okay to do it by yourself if you are capable. But honestly, my suggestion, get a coach or a friend 
because Stockfish is not going to tell you anything. It's just going to give you some evals, right? You really want to have some um, dialogue. I think the key is to have a dialogue with yourself and with your friend and to understand what are the thought processes that are driving your uh, moves. Yeah, I totally agree. I think knowing like the evaluation, like chess.com will tell you after the game what the evaluation was, is like 0.5% of the process of like actually getting better, like going through your games. So yeah, I'm totally with you. You need like a human, you need a human element because mistakes are made in your thought process, I think, uh, more often than your calculation. Like you're always going to miss moves at some point. But when I'm working with students, it's always like, you know, the idea starts out wrong and then it leads to like a bad position and then they blunder later. It's like, yeah, I'm not worried about the blunder. It's like your position was uh, was terrible. We got to focus on the decisions you make when everything was okay. Um, so, well, I mean, is there anyone who doesn't think that this is important of like the serious trainers out there? Like I've, I can't imagine anyone has been like, nah. <laughs> Well, one funny thing about it, though, I think, is because trainers can't make money off of saying to people, study your own games, the, what, the, the advice that people get out there, the things that people are sold, are not number four. They're just not. And Dvoretsky, too. I mean, the guy was producing loads of content all the time. And sure, he could say study your own games, but it wasn't really in any of his books, right? And everybody else, too. No, they... it, was, it was. I mean, he. a lot of his examples came from his student games. I mean, that's like... He would like go over the games with the students and that's... then show them to other students. So kind of... Fair enough, too. I, but I'm just saying, like... With all these guys, right, and and the information that people get on various YouTube videos or whatever it is out there, it's so much information and so much of it is not like you need to spend some time alone with your games. Um, and one of the things I love about it, it was very freeing for me, is all you need is a notebook and a pen. And and I think a nice wooden set is, is a good thing, maybe mm -hmm. a space to, you know, a space where it's quiet as well. Um, yeah, it's very freeing, I think, economically as well, because you just, it's all, all you need is a little bit of time to do this thing. Um, I will say, you know, it's funny how hard it is, and I want to admit it to, in front of everybody, that I haven't always followed my own advice. And what can often happen is you get back from a tournament and life is happening all around you, and... Um, you, you can say to yourself, okay, I'm going to get some really deep time to do the work, and it doesn't happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is because it's so hard, especially to make the first couple, make the, write that first page of notes. It's so hard to get into because it's so painful to confront your own business. And people put it off, and I have put it off uh, for a long time. And I think one of the reasons I push it so hard in my own teaching is I know that for myself, going to GM, it was like it only happened for me after I said, you are not allowed to play a, the next tournament until you've gone over the games from the other one before. <laughs> that was a huge moment for me because then it just forced me because I wanted to play the next tournament. And so I had to spend the time to go over the games. That was a good rule you set for yourself. Uh, I think Actually, one of the most useful books for chess players is probably this book called Atomic Habits that ah. just teaches you how to like set and build good habits. And yeah, one of like the 
the best things you can do if you want to actually achieve something is like uh, number one, like just have clear concrete rules and mm. boundaries. So for you is like, okay, if you don't go over your games, you don't play. It's very simple. You know exactly right. whether you passed or not. Um, another one is like uh, making like a public announcement or a public promise. Like if you tell someone, I'm not playing any tournaments uh, until I finish my games and they might they can like check in with you oh did you analyze your games <laughs> like either you lie to them or you know you have to confront confront the truth so yeah that was really useful one thing mitch is saying uh and i i wanted to bring this up because it's really interesting so this uh psychologist guy christopher chabri who's like a, a master level player um he is a very prominent psychologist, wrote some important books. And on this Perpetual Chess podcast, he made a simple but obvious point that everybody, there's so many people who go on, say, the Perpetual Chess podcast and other places as well, giving advice on what the best method of studying is. And a lot of times, I'm sure uh, Eugene and Kosti have had this experience, people come up to him and be like, oh, what's the best way for, for me to improve? And we all have our different answers, and we all give those answers kind of passionately. And they've been trained answers because we've given them so many times. Mm -hmm. But Christopher is like, dude, none of these methods have ever been tested. <laughs> and you would think, <laughs> it's like, it's an it obvious point, but it's like, oh, that's actually a very valid and interesting thing to think about. Because yeah. everybody has, there's so many different opinions out there. And I think we did well in capturing the top six and maybe other people might want to add to it you know of um different methods besides one we've listed but very divergent opinions no empirical data to support any given uh method well i think that makes a lot of sense uh to that point though there's a story i just heard uh the other day i'm just gonna paraphrase it might be getting some stuff wrong but basically it used to be we used to think that people grow the same amount during the day versus at night. Mm -hmm. um, and then in some decades ago, there was like a concerted effort uh, by mothers specifically who were like, no, no, kids grow more at night. Like I'm noticing that my kid is getting bigger when after they sleep. Oh, interesting. But science was like, no, no, no. They're like, it's never been proven that people grow, <laughs> but like all these, and then when they finally studied it, of course they found out like, yeah, actually people grow more. <laughs> so there is some kind of like general wisdom that I think is useful, but yeah, everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt. There's a lot of survivor bias, like whatever worked for me is what I'm gonna recommend to the next person. Right, exactly, yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on to the next one. We're gonna be talking about the Soviet school. And uh, I, we, me and um, Eugene came up with the idea of calling this chess culture. And uh, it's kind of a, actually a very interesting concept, I think, with the chess culture. Growing up in America, I had no idea what that meant the first time I heard that. And I will say, if you go play tournaments in anywhere in Eastern Europe, you will come up against this idea of chess culture and it pervades not just how you play the game, but the etiquette of the game as well. So just as a, a simple example, I remember back in the day playing a tournament in Hungary and somebody didn't set up the pieces after they finished the game. Imagine a big open, a lot of sets, you know, and somebody mm -hmm. didn't set up the pieces and, and the tournament organizer walked by and I heard him say, Ninja cultura, you know, no chess culture. <laughs> and so, right, the chess culture is something 
I think, and we're going to let Eugene break this down for us, but in my mind, it's an idea of how the game is played in terms of etiquette and also a culture of understanding the important moments that happen in the game. Um, and maybe the best argument for this chess culture is just how strong uh, Russian kids are compared to the rest of the world, right? Yeah, I should add to that that, you know, unlike U.S. chess culture, where every kid is basically for themselves, right? You kind of mm. do whatever you want. You love chess. You pick up a couple of Fisher's books, maybe Tal's books. Right. You study some tactics. Mm -hmm. Somebody is really into openings. They study, you know, some really crazy openings like, uh, I don't know, you know, you name, you can name a bunch of like King's Gambits or any other more sharp openings like Sicilians. Some people love end games, right? Now, all of those kids, when they're growing up and picking up chess, they're kind of on their own, right? Maybe their coach will guide them. Whereas in Russia, when you enter like a chess club, you are basically going to be taught for the most part with uh, a certain degree of uh, correct approach to chess, meaning that you develop your pieces towards the center, right? You study the classics games first of like Morpheus, Tainitz, Lasker. Then we slowly move on to other aspects. Then we look at end games. Then we do tactics and all of that sort of uh, on a stepping stone, right? That at some point, if you went through two or three years of the schooling, it doesn't matter where you grew up in Moscow or in Vladivostok, you're pretty much going to go through similar uh, introduction through. And that what I would call the foundation of the uh, chess culture. And the next step is you're rubbing shoulders with all these great masters, grandmasters. There's all these books through all of this sort of uh, you're also absorbing a lot of chess information, right? So therefore, when you look at a lot of Russian chess grandmasters, what do you typically say? Oh, he is a Russian grandmaster. His endgame must be pretty good, right, Jesse? Yeah. Like you don't hear him say, oh, he's from Russia. His endgame sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there are certain things that this Russian chess culture or school or Soviet chess school sort of... Uh, I guess, emphasizes over others. Whereas I'm not sure if we have that in the US at all, right? I can't say there is an American school of chess. You know no, what I mean? No. I mean, there's Bobby Fischer, there's a bunch of other famous GMs, but did you know that Bobby Fischer learned Russian so that he can read Russian books and study the Russian? Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> so that's... Sorry, uh, I just grabbed them. Um, I got uh, the original Soviet... Not the Soviet chess primer. Oh, the primer, uh, nice. But it's got, uh, yeah, it's got all the classics. I mean, this is actually an amazing book. I always recommend it for beginners because, like, it literally goes through the rules of chess, the actual rules, and then like all the basic like tactics and strategies and all, yep. a lot of that like key like Russian uh, Russian wisdom. I would say it's the same with generally with the Soviet education. It was centralized mm -hmm. education. Every, you know, forget about chess. Let's talk about just education in general, math, science. Every single school in the Soviet Union were taught by the same books, right? In the U.S., every school is on their own, right? It, you grow up in California in some, let's say, very expensive private school, and you grow up in some suburbs in Chicago, you're not taught the same type of math, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas... If you transport that kind of to Russia, it would be the same. 
the Soviet Union, you're going to be taught exactly the same material at the same day, at the same time of the day in all of these different cities and, and uh, re republics. Mm -hmm. um, well, I don't know. I think on the American school, like the, <laughs> the Fisher Morphy school, I would be like, you got to be on your own. You have yeah. to be better than everyone. It's like the hero school of chess. Like right, you gotta yeah, be yeah. a champion, right? Or the underdog, right? One, exactly. one against the, the you know, Fisher was one and there was all this like Russian, the chess machine, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and Morphe was kind of similar. He was like the only good player in America. Everyone else was in Europe and he had to like go travel to like beat them. Um, yeah. Or Hikaru Nakamura, right? Now we're, this is what we probably weren't going to bring it up, but now we have to bring it up. The bond cloud opening yeah. <laughs> e4, e5. So Hikaru used to play e4, e5, queen h5 for the yeah, local school on Melo. So he became a pretty strong GM, like against strong GMs. Yeah. He would play it with like somewhat predictable, right? And then now he's playing e4, e5, king e2. Now, if you tell me that Kasparov would do that or any of the famous Russian players, Kramnik, no, he, they would never, they have some kind of respect for chess, for the game, for culture, for their opponent, it's not even going to cross their minds to do this, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah, I think that's a very good point. And that's what I meant about chess culture expanding out from not just which moves you play, but how you play the game itself, right? Yes. The etiquette around the board, which is very... Once you resign, by the way, was a huge yeah. deal. Like, if you didn't resign in time, your coach is going to chew you out in Russia. Whereas now the... You know, what I'm teaching my students and most coaches are saying, never resign, right? Always fight on. Yeah. Yeah. American wisdom, yeah, never resign. Uh, which I think actually is not great uh, because some students will play on in a lost position for like half an hour, like ruin their mood because they're just sitting there like down a bunch of pieces. Like yeah. they don't want to yeah, play, but their parents said like, you got to stay until the whole time, right? Like Especially in these big uh, tournaments, two, three rounds a day, right? Where like lots of this... Uh, you know, junior tournaments and scholastic tournaments. Yeah, this is insane. Yeah, better just, yeah, save time, rest up for, for next. Like, up. you lost the game, that's okay. Like, just get some rest and <laughs> move on. <laughs> yeah. But one thing I should say about uh, the Soviet chess school is that because it's so uniform and so many famous, you know, masters, GMs went through this, it's quite difficult to break, break out. Break out of, you know, if you're like an average GM, Take or average I am. Take Yermo. Did you guys read The Road to Chess Improvement? Right. A uh, good chunk of it. Yeah, really good book. So he basically was just like very promising I am pretty much not making much progress, right? And the moment he left the Soviet Union, the moment he left Russia, he moved to the U.S. He started finding his own um, self, right? Defi redefining himself as a chess player. He became a GM, a really strong GM, right? Multiple U.S. champion. Uh, really high rated. He wrote a book, The Road to Chess Improvement. And I feel like that's quite interesting how sometimes getting out of your you know, comfort zone or out of a certain culture and rediscovering yourself is a fresh start. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and one thing I, I should mention is I think in America, there's elements of the Soviet school in, for example, what I would call the Armenian American school. And Kostya was a, a little bit of a product of that, having studied with several, mm -hmm. with Malik and Var. And um, that is lives on because I think the Armenians have, I think, their own take and their own principles, but they definitely have a sense of what chess culture is 
and the way chess should be played. Not like a method, like number two, but a culture of the way you think about things and how you are acculturated into the game as a young kid. Right? Did you get yeah. what telescopes? I mean, yeah, you you he came you came up and you had a lot of lessons with Malik and Var, and I assume there's a little bit of that. I I should clarify, mostly Var. I worked with Malik uh, in a couple of camps and stuff, but never nice, like one on one. And I also worked quite a bit with uh, Coach Harmon on Bartumian. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who was I think is an amazing coach, mm -hmm. really, really uh, quality guy. I mean, he worked with uh, Dvoretsky, Laputian, like I think mm -hmm. all like so many <laughs> so many figures. Uh, so he, he was a real, he's a real legend too. Yeah. And you know, one thing actually I'll say about Nakamura is that the guy in a way, what people don't understand is he did have a good coach in his father-in-law, yeah. Sunil Weirmantri, great coach, great lessons. And so he had the knowledge, but there was a sense that he never got the culture and Oh my God, there's so many incidents, but the one that sticks out in my mind that really just burns me to this day is with U.S. Championship, I think, yeah, Eugene was there. That was the one in, the second one in San Diego. Yep, I was there. And Nakamura was playing the Fermian, and the whole game long, he played it as if it was a one-minute game. Yep. So the Fermian was thinking, thinking like a normal person, and then Nakamura would and Nakamura is like hours on the clock. You would instantly play and then whack it like that. Whack! And I never forgave him for that. And that had everything to do with some kind of sense of chess culture, even though I didn't really grow up in any kind of Soviet school or anything. I was just like, you don't... Maybe also a little bit actually of American sensibility of like deferring as an American hero and you're not going to play like that against him. I don't want to see it, buddy. You better take it back. And, okay. and one other thing yeah. that Nakamura hated draws so much that he would play out three against three, you know, rook and pawn end game mm. on the same wing and right. or something similar with the bishops. And even in like regular against strong players, he would just keep playing it out. And I felt like there was a lot of disrespect. Well, yeah, at a certain point, I mean, it's just kind of like it's not great sportsmanship, right? Because it, it might not be against the rules, but you still want to play the game in a way that makes other people want to play with you. Like... You know, you want to be fair and not exactly. like making it uh, unpleasant for them in some kind of unnecessary way. Right. Right. Um, okay. Uh, let's. I don't know. I ahead. think Jeffrey Zhang was probably happy to see King E two. I would be thrilled if Naka played. King <laughs> I'd be like, oh, thank God. He. I, well, I at chance. first I would be thrilled, but then I realized if I lose this game, I'm gonna go into yeah, the uh, annals of chess history as the loser <laughs> against them. <laughs> That's right. Oh yes. That's so bad. Yeah. Okay, um, I would say I flirt with this next one, calculation. Um, like a lot of Americans, actually, I didn't grow up with a teacher, so I had to learn a lot of stuff in books, and there was mm -hmm. a lot of problem books. And one thing I just, that's funny to me about calculation books, right now I'm doing this book, uh, here I'll show it, literally called Calculation by Agard. It's a very tough book. Uh, you know, I'm, it's going to take me definitely more than oh, a yeah, month Oh, yeah, I did two. that book. That's a tough one, yeah. It's going to take me more than a month or two to do. But something I realize about it and about myself that's kind of funny is the joy I get out of doing problems is, I think, a lot similar to the joy that crossword puzzle people get out of immersing themselves in a crossword puzzle. It's just very enjoyable to sit there and think about something and not think about anything else. So 
I'm, I say that because uh, I don't know how much it's actually going to help me. I, I, I'd like to believe it does, but uh, it's also has a kind of enjoyment all on its own. And I think the calculation people, maybe they're not aware that that's what they're doing, but it's definitely part of that school, I think, is you enjoy doing puzzles and studies. And if you're really hardcore about it, and we should just put it out there, is you really have to believe that that is where the battle is decided, is in calculation. And I think a lot of, Dvoretsky has a lot of similarities with that view. Um, Grabinski is the coach of a lot of famous players. He wrote Perfect Your Chess, my favorite puzzle book. And uh, Kosi and I have had the honor of doing some co-chess streams with Mikhailo Oleksienko, who is his student. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of fun, uh, you know, just to talk to him about it. And also, I'm going to pass it to you, Eugene. You told me a great story about the Chinese school of chess. And uh, I think that's very similar. And so please tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a story that I heard uh, from Kramnik talking about his own game against uh, playing against Ding Lerang. I think in 2018, the candidates, the Berlin candidates, mm -hmm. Kramnik, I think, was better, completely outplayed Ding Lerang, but couldn't quite finish him off. And with accurate defense, Ding defended. And then Kramnik, after the game and post-mortem, was telling him how much better he was in the game, but, you know, he wasn't sure where he missed the win. And then Ding said, but I calculated everything and everywhere I'm holding, therefore I was fine. So his basic prin principle is basically, if I don't see a forced way for me to lose, if every line, even if there's a miracle, right, but I'm holding on by, by thread, I'm okay. This is like the engine approach, right? Right. It's equal, zeros, yeah. Yeah, it's 0, 0.0, even if it takes 10 only moves to get to the... <laughs> Uh, right. And then the funny part is that, uh, so Kramnik said, okay, what if I do this in this one line? So he they went on some moves, and then Jing says, then I do this. And then Kramnik says to him another line, and then Jing says, I do this. And at first it seemed like everything is fine, but then Kramnik says, but in your line where you said this and this, what if I do this? And then Jing thinks for about like half a minute, he says, ah, okay, maybe I'm lost. Okay, maybe you're right, I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> so fine. just kind of like, like that. It's like the experience you have with analyzing with old engines. You like play some sack, like, come on, this looks pretty good. And it's like, no, you're down a piece. You're like, how about this move? Oh, okay, yep. maybe black is getting made in <laughs> <laughs> So and then Kramnik basically kind of uh, looks at Ding as an example of a Chinese chess school where it's, it's primarily calculation-based. But I would actually say, in truth, I mean, Ding's positional chess is incredible. So, you know, don't, you know, if you think he's just a random calculator, you know, the guy calculates probably one of the best in the world for sure, but his positional chess is outstanding too. So you can't, uh, you can't completely uh, eliminate that part from his chess. And I guess yeah. if you were going to be a believer in the calculation school of chess, right, you would say something like, well, by playing, just playing chess, you are going to develop a positional intuition, but it's in the calculation that you're going to win the game, right? That's how you're going to elevate your game above everybody else. That's right, yeah. And also, it's very difficult to define positional chess. Right. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, even yeah. like in Augard books, you know, I have his book, Positional Chess. Yeah. A lot <laughs> of the positions are 
calculation based and then he tries to explain them from a positional point of view right but at the end of the day uh, it's really calculation right <laughs> so yeah. it's a very thin line honestly between positional chess and calculation and i think uh Grandmasters have a really good feel for the game, how the game should be played, where mm. each piece should go, what to do in every position. But at the end of the day, when we have to convert a position, we have to calculate at some point, right? Like, I don't think you can eliminate calculation entirely right. from yeah, yeah. the game. I think it's a very important component. And I am one of the uh, first Grandmasters to say that a lot of the times when I'm playing a low-rated player, I'm lazy. You know, yeah, I yeah. see a promising line, but it involves me calculating five moves at the advance. I'm like, I'm not going to go for that line. But, yeah. if, but if I don't go for that line, I'm going to have to win the game. It's going to take me more moves, more effort. And then mm. 10 moves later, I'm like, why didn't I force myself to calculate that line? Now I have to struggle to, to win the game. <laughs> right. Sombrero has a question. Does Grabinski have a book on his method? And Kosia answered with Perfect Your Chess. And one thing I just want to expand on that answer is we're talking with Oleksienko, and the deal would be that they would just go in there. It would be like a bunch of guys. And I think this is actually really, if you're going to do it, you should do it with mm -hmm. some friends and some, some, peop, some peers. And he would bring them in, set them with some positions, and then they would have to solve them. And that's all they did day after day after day. You get some positions, you work on it, you solve it. And if you get it wrong, you got to go back and figure out why you're wrong. Right? So you're really expanding this ability to calculate better than anybody else. And uh, so that's the method. And I guess that's the only book right now that the guy's got. But I guess they're coming out with a new one. Oh, good. And, oh, you're going to like this story, Jesse, about okay. oh, Dvoretsky, Dvoretsky, where he was studying with Yusupov and Dolmarov and some preparing for some tournament, but he couldn't analyze with both of them at the same time. So they would have some interesting position and he would analyze it, let's say, with Yusupov. And to get Dolmatov occupied, he would give him one of these tough calculation puzzles, right? And then he's like, these are hard, by the way. Take your time. Yeah. <laughs> Five minutes later, Dolmatov runs in. I got it. I got it. He's like, you're sure? Yeah, yeah, I got it. Of course, he gets it wrong. Yeah. And then as a punishment, he had to run a lap around their training base. It's like, you know, 5K or whatever. Right. So he would run a lap, come back. Dvoretsky's like, okay, you ready for another puzzle? Sure, sure. I'm ready. I'm all excited. He gives him another puzzle. He says, this is a tough one. Yeah. Make sure you take your time. You know, the, again, five, ten minutes later, he runs and I got it. He's like, make sure you double check yourself. No, no, I got it. I got it. Yeah. He runs another lap. And this has been going on for days. And he said, well, I can tell you the amount of tactical, uh, tactical abilities dramatically improved, but so did his physical endurance. That's why he <laughs> won his next turn. <laughs> <laughs> and I think to be fair to these people, if we had a, a real, you know, somebody, a real advocate for number six, I think what they would say is that whenever Cry or Eugene talks about principles, uh, they're like, no, you, you guys are just fooling yourselves. You have no idea what you're saying. There's only one true way, and it's about calculating. There's <laughs> All right. that other stuff is like metaphysical brouhaha, and it's just misleading everybody else, and please, please, please stop talking about it. I think that's what they would say, right? They would say something like that. It's very hard line. Very hard line. I, I think there's some, yeah, there's different, uh, I think people have different concerns about different stuff. There's a lot of projection going on. I think there's a lot of players who uh, are not great at calculation naturally, and they, they try to minimize it. And so they focus mm -hmm. on the method. 
Hmm. Um, and there are other players who kind of focus on calculation. And I feel like still the, everyone gets stuck. Once people get stuck, that's when they start saying like, oh, nothing works. It's all about talent and calculation and like everything is predetermined. But um, of course it's a mix. Like, you know, your intuition gives you an idea of what to look for. And then your, your brain figures out the execution, you know? So of course it's a mix, I think for, for every strong player. Um, I think the mistake is oversimplifying things to one degree or another. Hmm. And I would say that even like if you take uh, two examples, Magnus Carlsen, Hikaru Nakamura, you couldn't come up with two polar opposites uh, chess players, right? But when they're playing against each other, it's probably the highest, especially in Blitz, like recently, it's probably one of the highest levels of Blitz I've ever seen, right? Right, right. Um, but what's interesting is that Magnus is all about intuition and the flow. He talks a lot about the flow. He has a good feel for the game. He, he knows where the pieces are going. Everything sort of the calculation is part of his flow. But if something goes wrong, he has a bad day, or he's upset, and he's not calculating well, he could really play really badly, right? We've seen him play badly occasionally. It's a rare case, but he can do that. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that even at the top, there are different approaches to yeah. the game. Right. right and uh, it doesn't matter if you guys think it's all about calculation or it's all about intuition. Honestly, all of the six approaches are in their own right unique. And you can probably take any of these approaches and it, it may work for you or it may not, may not work for you. Or you may take a little bit out of every approach, right? Mm -hmm. So there is no one size fits all approach. Well, how about this? In, in wrapping this up, why don't we talk briefly just about or just say state what we what our own approaches are and so like just as an example i'll begin and i'll say i'm definitely with number four but i'm mm -hmm. friendly i'm friendly with five and six <laughs> all right i guess i am probably somewhere between number one and number uh two uh -huh. And definitely friendly with uh, number four, five, and six. Okay. Uh, I think I mentioned in the chat, but I'm like, I would say I'm 25% each of numbers three through six. Very okay. balanced. Yeah. But if I had to pick one, actually, I would pick number five. If I had to choose like one, this is what I'm going with. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, We'll, we'll let you guys do any quick last thoughts, but I just want to say to everybody out there, we are going to take a very quick break, and then Kosya and I are coming back for Sunday Night Fights. That is where we cover the games of people playing in our the Test Chess Dojo. You can find us on the Discord channel. And uh, then I'll throw it back to you guys. Any last thoughts? Yeah, actually, there was a great question from uh, Grey Wolf. How do you measure whether you're really improving or not? I would say don't worry about it. Find something that makes sense to you, do it for a month, and by the end of it, you will be better. But you have to commit to it for like, you can't just try a method for two days and then play some Blitz games and be like, oh, I didn't get better. You got to commit something for like a, a real period of time, you know, four weeks of dedicated uh, learning. How about you, Eugene? Let me throw it to you for the, the last word. What would you? Yeah, so a lot of students actually ask me these kind of similar questions, like, what should I be doing? You know, let's say most of our students are like adult improvers who have maybe two, three hours. I mean, everyone has families and, and jobs. Mm. What should I be doing in those two, three hours, right? 
Yeah. That's a good question because we can be doing what? So many things. We can be analyzing our own games. We can be playing Blitz online. We can be learning openings through like Chessable and all these other cool new tools. I mean, the problem is there's all, all of these options and it's very difficult to choose what is the best one, right? I think the right approach is unless you have a coach or much stronger player who knows your weaknesses and strength, it's very difficult for you yourself to decide. Like if you don't have a coach, you should, you should honestly just do whatever you enjoy the most. If you love solving studies, you know, who cares about analyzing your games? If you, you can improve no matter what, if you solve studies day in and day out, right? Uh, you don't have to be doing any of these things if you don't want to. But if you want to improve dramatically, you probably want a coach to kind of guide you what you should be doing, right? And if you have a really bad repertoire, you may not even get to the end game, right? You may not even get to, uh, to some of the calculation because you're just going to get bad positions. So maybe for you, the first thing to do is to simply have a really thought out, well-planned repertoire that fits your style. And then from that point on, we move on to other things, right? So I would say that it's very, like my approach to teaching chess is, is, uh, is not like, here is what I'm going to teach you, no matter if you're this rating or that rating. It's very individual. I look at my students' games. I explain to them what their strengths and weaknesses are, and we work on those uh, issues. And depending on, on that, I will pick which approach to choose. It could be... Uh, purely calculation number six, or it could be a uh, drill with examples. Let's say, if, you know, if they have really weak strategic and positional understanding, there's lots of classical examples out there. Okay, cool. So I guess we'll end it there. 